Welcome to In the Landscape, a podcast on all things landscape design and care related with your hosts, Kate and Charles Sadler. We are back for another week in the landscape. So excited to be in studio today. I'm with my co-host, Charles Sadler. And I am Kate Sadler. And this is the In the Landscape podcast where we discuss all things landscape design, history, a little bit of ecology, some horticulture, things that capture our interest. And the topics are many. And that's why we sort of bounce around from <laughs> topic to topic. And travel too. Absolutely. The Just travel. travel. Seeing often being in a new region opens our eyes. And then some, when we come back to a region we may be familiar with, we see things differently. That's a great way of putting it. Now, speaking of which, you were actually on the road. We pre-recorded several episodes. And so the last one that we released from that batch was the Welcoming Wildlife episode, which mm-hmm. I really loved. I'm out in the landscape myself lately, trying to snap photos to upload to our social media pages of all the wildlife that's out there. So that's a lot of fun. And you were on the road recently for work for the King Garden landscape design company. And right. tell us a little bit about that. Where did you go? Let's see. I arrived in New York, a little bit of work in greater New York City area. Then I drove to, I went to a nursery, an evergreen specialty nursery in Massachusetts, which I think was Hadley, maybe North Hadley. And so that was a real special experience. That was a fellow that I've communicated with and it was great to see his nursery in person. And let's see, then I drove on to Maine. It was a new client and there were specialty, there was a need for espalier pruning. So they had a, a fruit, there was pear trees that were espalier. And for folks who we have mentioned maybe in previous episodes, but just remind us what espalier looks like. What is that technique? Well, it's growing a fruit tree with horizontal arms. You could grow it flat against a wall. It's really just two-dimensional. So the trunk goes, is at 90 degrees going straight up, and then there's horizontal branches, at, and they're usually about 18 inches apart. And it can still bear fruit in that shape? Right. In its origins, it's very practical. It was in the old world, in Europe and other countries, it was to grow fruit like in a monastic, in a confined setting often, is my understanding. So it was to grow the maximum amount of food in a limited space. And sometimes it's, it was to grow, f- if it was on a south-facing wall, maybe you have a fig tree that's espaliered that wouldn't be quite hardy in, let's say, northern Italy. Great. So for those of you who are new to the podcast, if you go back a few episodes, you'll see we did one all about fruit. And we do mention some espalier techniques there. That's pretty cool. So you were at this property to work on this specific type of pruning. And this was all the way up in Maine. How was the weather up there? Was it starting to get fall-like? I was surprised there was more fall color from New York, Massachusetts. I went to New Hampshire briefly. And in Maine, there was a fair amount. It was a pretty drive. So it may sound like a long way to go to do pruning, but we do get calls from all over the country, sometimes even other countries for the specialty work that we do specific to pruning. And it's just because the community in which we're being asked to visit may be underserved in terms of just sheer expertise. There's a lot of really phenomenal landscape maintenance teams out there that are doing really good work. And there's just a knowledge base that we tend to bring to our for-profit company that is one of the reasons we started a podcast, because we thought we'd share that knowledge in a different format. Right. In the design world, it may be more visible, but you think you buy a coffee table garden book and there's the designer from from a country other than where you live. And people of certain economic means would 
could hire that person. He or she could come visit their country. And so that's pretty common. I mean, throughout history, that's gone on. And so the garden care, what we call it design care, so caring for the garden with the same attention as the designer designed it, we travel just like the person who designed it originally does. That's a great point. Yeah. Well, it's certainly a means of making a living for us, but it is also a real passion to be able to bring like good care practices into landscapes all over and make sure that we're educating people about best practices. We very often even educate the maintenance teams that are there. Like it's not that we're going to come in with our own crew and kind of take over a landscape. We're really there to train in the techniques that we we happen to be trained in. Mm -hmm. And so that's a really nice kind of exchange that we get to be a part of. Right, we create gardeners, uh, landscape professionals all over. It's a nice community. (laughs) Really is. So speaking of that, we are actually going to start developing distance ed courses that we'll be hosting on our website, kinggardeninc.com. So stay tuned for that. We'll talk about that a little bit more in future episodes to help people find that. Those are going to be ranging on topics from soil science to how to hand prune your ornamental shrubs and and give you guidance with videos and lectures and lab assignments. And it could be really quite exciting for people who want to go that extra step in terms of their knowledge. So anything else about the road trip that you want to share with our listeners before we head into our topic for today? Well, see, a destination I went to, it's called the Berkshire Botanic Garden. So it's like Western Massachusetts, the Stockbridge area. There's an Arnold Rockwell Museum there. There are some historic communities where houses are preserved from the 1700s. That's a very special botanic garden, the Berkshire Botanic Garden. And there's many educational components. So as you're traveling through different garden spaces, there's a new topiary garden, a couple donated, I believe, I, as my, I understand it, topiary from their own garden, which came from Connecticut, which was transplanted to uh, Massachusetts. It's a not that old of a botanic garden. And so it's vibrant and there's new components and education. There's a new, new buildings. It's a nice destination. That's excellent. So we'll see if we can share links to that in the show notes, um, links to some of their maybe social media pages or see what's going on there for people who are going to be able to make a stop there and check it out. That's right. a great reference. It's easy to get to. Today's topic, we have covered, as I've said, ecological topics, horticultural topics, how to plant, how to do some irrigation. And in one episode, we talked early on about how you would begin to plan your own design. Like if you're going to not just maybe plant a bed with some annuals and perennials for a specific short period of time, but you were going to put together a more designed landscape, although the beds require design too. (laughs) Uh, (laughs) There's this element of planning that goes into it. We address that in one episode, talking about getting your survey and looking at sunshade and the seasons. So all of that's great. We wanted to get a little more specific in terms of a design topic. And so today's episode is all about the outdoor room. The outdoor room, as we enjoy doing, we did some some history looking back to the past, which always informs where we're going, where we've been, so to speak, as a culture. I mean, I feel like good design, it's always building on what has been done. Maybe there's improvements, maybe there's no improvements needed. Like a tree provides shade. That's a timeless, <laughs> that doesn't need improvement. Uh, one country that we look back to sort of see when this be, this idea of an outdoor room, if you look back to Persian garden history, which is about 4000 BCE, the earliest research, which I found is showing that some of these earliest garden spaces, and there's a term of paradise garden, 
I think of a, an oriental carpet that's more or less depicting a paradise garden. So this idealized outdoor space that has plants and often water and attracts birds and other, other animals. So the word paradise is, the root of it is paradisa, more or less, which is, means walled around, like an enclosed outdoor space, which is perfect for our topic. And some of these early garden spaces, it's similar to the episode we just had on, on habitat. So wildlife likes food, shelter, sun, shade, water. Some of these earliest Persian spaces, that's what they provided to people that were traveling. So it was like a nomadic culture, like many early cultures were. Now I have a fun tie-in for this. In Yonkers, New York, there is a walled Persian style garden at oh. Hunter Meyer, which is a park there, mm-hmm. maintained, I believe, by the city of Yonkers. Right. And so this walled garden is gorgeous. I mean, it has, it overlooks the Hudson River Valley. It has these gorgeous walls. It has some statues, has the water features, as you say. And then it has these little alcoves. So there's one in particular that's a bench that's mm. covered by a trellis <laughs> <laughs> that looks out over the river in this beautiful walled garden, as we're discussing. And that's actually where you proposed to me. Mm-hmm. Yeah, very special location. <laughs> so, <laughs> One I'll never forget. <laughs> so I thought that would be a nice tie-in to this topic because it is that sense of safety, that sense of having an enclosure around you and an ability to see out into a lush garden or even into a view that is this, as you've said to me before, almost human ideal. And I think it harkens back to our time in caves or in plains of Africa with trees oh. at our backs or some, something along those lines, Correct, this right. almost biological need to feel sheltered with the ability to see out that sort of informs how we end up using some of these outdoor spaces. It can't be too closed in, but that sense of safety and shelter is really nice. Right. It's like the right, there's a sweet spot, like you'd say, where you think of there's a ground plane where you're walking or sitting, then there's the overhead plane, which if you're outside at the sky, which is at the very high ceiling, <laughs> or if there was a tree, that ceiling, or if there was another structure. The one at the Untermeyer Garden, I believe if it's, if I'm remembering my architecture history, a pergola is often attached to a building. A logia is a structure that provides shade, not necessarily a solid roof though. And I think that's what, where I proposed the under. It's like a, there are four posts or four columns and then a trellis on top for vine. So it's, it's allowing in some sunlight, but there's some shade. And it happens to be right next to a monkey puzzle tree, which is one of my favorites. Oh, right. Yeah, it's a very special spot. So <laughs> in terms of outdoor rooms, I thought that would be a nice tie-in. And it's really interesting to think that the historical record shows that this was, there was this type of cultivation as far back as 4000 BCE. And of course, I think if we were to look at the history of countries like China in India, we'd probably see similar efforts at cultivation in this like private space. So if you think of the outdoor space, there's a practicality of what is the ground and then what's, what's the program, you know, which we can get into at some point in the episode. And so there's all different, if it's just soil, that could be very nice, but it could become muddy, it could become dusty. If it's a, a stone paving material, that could last forever, but it could get very hot. Or when it's cold out, it could be cold. So the materials, so thinking of your outdoor, your ideal outdoor space, your, there's the floor, the ceiling, and the walls. And there's 
since it's outdoors, I would say there's even more materials to choose from than indoors. And they all have different benefits, different, I guess, costs of all different types. Or there might be like a maintenance cost, or it might look beautiful one time of the year, another time of the year, there's no leaves, or it's too hot during one season, or it's too cold. That's a really good point. Of course, then we'll get sort of toward the very end of the episode to the part where we get to shop and accessorize <laughs> and think about what kind of furniture we're going to include in the space. And, oh, right. you know, if we're going to have a fire pit versus a grill or <laughs> depending on what our need for the space is going to be. This is design focused. How would you figure out what the program is meant to be? We talk about this in our episode about like broad landscape design. Program is really important and view how you're, how you are going to be in a space and both see into that space and see out of that space. Yeah, that's, you're right. Standing in this space, which you anticipate you'd want to use, we talked about in one of the planning episodes, marking out the space. So if it's maybe it's a very big space and you need, and you want a space to gather within that, having things oriented, architects love the term a center line, where you draw a line off the center. If it's a, a colonial home, central entrance, if it's an Asian style home, maybe it's an asymmetrical ent- entrance, but it's the outdoor spaces. It definitely doesn't have to be symmetrical. The outdoor spaces don't have to be symmetrical, but they should relate to the home or to the buildings. If they don't relate, so if you say, oh, it, we're going to just do whatever, we're going to have a free form, there could be a disconnect. Or maybe there's a tree root as you're walking from, from the building to your outdoor space. And every time people walk, they, they trip. And so just with a little bit of planning, and then maybe the best view, for instance, I mean, this happens all the time. In these beautiful properties we work on, there's a vista from the home and there's an outdoor space. Oh, wouldn't it be great to be sitting out there and enjoying that view? If you reverse that, so maybe you put, there's an outdoor fireplace and there's furniture, and then you might lose the view of that beautiful scene from when you're back in the house. So it's it definitely nuanced to think, you know, there's costs and benefits for all these decisions. And so, so good design, it just systematically goes through in ways, this would be three months of the year, we're going to be right on the edge of the water, this great view. Nine months of the year, we're going to be in the house or the other type of a building. And we're going to see this outdoor patio is going to block our view. <laughs> and then weighing those, you know, those costs and benefits. So you're starting to figure out the program. And I know one of the limiting factors to my enjoyment of outdoor space. Believe me, I love to be outdoors as often as possible. It's like a tale of two back porches. So in New York, our back porch faces a river and the winds in the winter just come straight off of, I mean, you can't use it half the year, if not maybe a little more. And it's, it's covered from the rain. It's not, that's not an issue or the snow, but it's freezing cold and therefore unusable. And then our back porch in Texas is west-facing, and it just gets that southwestern sun coming in and is, frankly, too hot to be out there. So in the morning, in the evening, it's really nice, and I imagine probably for more of the year than it was in New York. But it is still, unless those conditions are just right, I won't be outside as much as I like to be outside. Right. So the goal, let's say, is to be outside so this, the amount of sun and shade and wind is very important. And that's like in these early gardens, like the Persians, I mean, they were creating spaces that 
created shade. They'd often plant fruit trees, it, it said, and there'd be water available. So the amount of shade, I remember in my landscape architecture studies in graduate school, we learned the optimal temperature is that people in, people feel comfortable when it's about 82 degrees outdoors. And you can observe this. You could try this out, see if this is true in your, in your region. When you're in a public park at 82 Fahrenheit, of course, if it's above that, people are going to seek out shade and it, it never fails. If it's 86 degrees and there's a, let's say like a public park with seating, if it's 86 degrees, people are not going to sit in the, most people are not going to sit in the sun. Maybe there'll be children playing that are, you know, like oblivious to it. So having that in mind. So here, like in Texas, it's above 82 a lot of the year. It's like, it's, it's like close to 100. <laughs> so, yes. There's periods of... We're, we're approaching October here and it's more than 82 degrees outside. So just knowing that in the Northeast, well, in the Mid-Atlantic, into New York, into New England, it's not above 82 in New England that long, really. It's maybe months, but it's not, it's not many months. <laughs> so having so, if you're, let's say, designing in New England, like when I spent time there recently, there was a discussion about a pergola, having an outdoor space uh, that would provide shade. People may think that that would make it comfortable, but it could be too cold. Where the time that you would use that, like let's say in northern New England, where you're, it's going to be shady, you're creating something that's going to be shady all year, it might not be warm enough. And so there's, there's all kinds of, but for that sense of that comfortable overhead plane, there are Maybe there is a pergola or a logia, but it's very open. So there's columns and then it's only shading, let's say like 10 or 20%, where if you're in, in the Southern US, maybe you want that, maybe you want like 80% shade. As with many things, it just means I, my tendency would be to go quickly to say, I want to have this outdoor space. I am going to go to the outdoor furniture store and start buying pillows because that's my <laughs> priority is colorful pillows maybe some outdoor containers for plants. But this concept that we keep coming back to in terms of design is it really is about problem solving. Like how, how is the space going to be used? How are you going to be most comfortable? How are you going to make it inviting? Sometimes mm -hmm. making something inviting is having it a little bit less. Well, this is for me maybe, but almost that secret garden. Right. Feature How's where mystery, yeah. There's a you know you kind of go through a gate in a hedge or something, and so maybe the the outdoor space is maybe there's a gathering space near the house, but maybe you're also using a part of the garden that is underutilized and creating some path and lighting. Even we may mm -hmm. need to talk about that to kind of invite people down into a more private space where they can do something like garden meditation or yoga in the garden, which right, which is very popular. Delightful. I mean, like. Public gardens are, are very well programmed and yoga and other types of practices like that meditation are popular. So when we were talking about this episode, when I think of outdoor furniture, garden furniture, I think of it, it can pull you into a space. It can be this attraction. It can create an access. So maybe there's, there's hedges or other type of plantings. And instead of having a sculpture at the end of a path, there, there's a bench. And so it's this invitation and then you can focus the visitor. Maybe there's a very special view or sculpture or a very special hydrangea that, that the homeowner or uh, residents, and this bench is going to be next to that. And so you're somewhat directing, you're suggesting beautiful places where someone might visit. It can pull you into the garden. 
Well, and it turns out that the furniture is important in the civic spaces as well. And we were in Paris a couple of years ago and mm-hmm. visited Luxembourg Gardens, which has some pretty renowned <laughs> chairs that oh, right. are special because you can move them. In a lot of cases, garden furniture is, I almost want to say heavy, like it, the, it is a bench or something that is fixed and not intended to be moved around. But maybe one might want to think about having some movable furniture so that people can adjust it. And then that gets you into the whole range of special outdoor chairs. And it's so iconic. I think I was mentioning on PBS, there was a cartoon where the characters visited the Luxembourg Gardens and they mentioned the chairs (laughs) because this idea of being able to create conversation groups or come perch by the poolside is really almost, I guess, a democratic way of using a park. And being able to move them in Midtown Manhattan, there's a French-inspired park, which uh, uh, Laurie Olin's firm, Olin Partners, redesigned. And so it's, it's in the French spirit. And they have those same, uh, the company is, if I'm pronouncing it right, Fermob, it's F-E-R-M-O-B. And so they've made those Parisian bistro chairs. That's the style that's in many French parks. And, it's and in, is it Bryant Park? It's in, yeah. And it's in Bryant okay. Park. Mm. If whether it's your home, if it's a corporate or a civic or a campus, having movable furniture, it's what they call it's an open program. So let's say there's six people in your group and you're having a picnic, you can bring six chairs together. If you're there by yourself and you're gonna you're meeting a friend, you could maybe pull one chair to itself. You want a little privacy. And so that open program, so good parks. And also residential spaces, there's a variety of options. There's maybe fixed seating that is a destination. So that might be a heavy, a heavy bench or a bench or a seating that's not movable or even a seating wall. And so that what's neat about a seating wall is when it's not used, it doesn't look empty. So seats, when they look empty, some people would say that if you like, like a park, having some seating that when it's empty, it doesn't look empty like seating walls. That, that would be the case. And so in Luxembourg Gardens, uh, they developed a whole line, the same company as for Mo. There's like a Luxembourg, you know, like it's called Luxembourg Range that's, that's, re- that's now become internationally renowned, desirable. And there's all different. There's one that's particularly cool. It's a reclining chair. Now it looks like an upright chair that's been bent or melted. <laughs> and they come in very cool colors. And so it's, it's just a simple element which can create this language when, and you can have that same language in your home, having this cohesiveness of, you know, that maybe it's a color that accents other elements. Yeah. My other favorite reclining chair for the outdoors is the Adirondack chair. That's, oh, right. It seems like a stargazing chair to me, or <laughs> maybe you'd watch fireflies in that chair. Cause it is a steep recline. I mean, mm-hmm. you're really like, you're oh, committed yeah. to relax. Right. <laughs> <laughs> And that actually, to be fair, it does sometimes make it a little hard as a conversation chair. So uh, this concept oh. of how it's actually used, I mean, it's really a go-to. Like we have an outdoor space, get some Adirondack chairs. They look fantastic. They come in great colors. But if it doesn't serve the program, maybe it's not, we've talked about the right plant in the right place. Maybe it's not the right furniture element in the right place. Mm-hmm. So trying them out, you know, that's with some furniture companies carpet companies, they will let you bring it home. So I don't know if a, <laughs> if a furniture company for outdoor furniture would do that, but to try it out as best as possible, you know, try it out to sit in it and imagine how, how it's going to be used. 
Well, and sometimes, I mean, we've talked about going to gardens to see our plant choices at their full maturity. And a lot of parks, as we've said, might have chairs that we can try. Some of these gardens will have specialty furniture that you can. So it may not be that you even need to bring it home, but just be observant of what you're experiencing and what you like and dislike about what you've encountered, maybe even in your neighbor's or friend's yards, what really speaks to you and what do you think you can incorporate? Because at the end of the day, as we've sort of talked about, budget is a factor in this consideration that, mm-hmm. you know, outdoor furniture is not inexpensive. Certainly all of my pillows and lanterns and <laughs> hangings <laughs> are going to add to the cost. So thinking carefully about what you're going to use and the level of maintenance or care that it's going to need is important because mm-hmm. these are more, I don't know, they're not high, necessarily highest ticket items, but they can be. I mean, it can certainly add up if you're trying to do decorate a full space. And the factors, if, it's, if the furniture is going to stay outside, it has to be very well made. Or like, let's say like a beach chair it is not that well made. Generally, you're going to fold it up. It spends time in your, maybe in the trunk of your car or your garage or your shed. But if, if, if it's a wood, if it's cedar, teak, oak, a tropical hardwood ipe, if that chair is going to stay outside all year, that is, has to be very high quality. The hardware that it's constructed with has to be very high quality. Now, what about flooring in terms of these outdoor rooms? Because we have grass, we have, or turf, we have keystone. And one of the drawbacks to having your furniture outside is that it can often be kind of unbalanced because it's uh, you know not quite level. So do you have any suggestions for what you would do to ensure that? Or are there surfaces that you recommend if people wanted to maybe stay away from the full concrete pad? Okay. Yeah. Good question. So that's, I guess, really thinking of the program. I mean, some of the, the big categories of outdoor spaces would be a dining area and then like a secondary. The secondary area would be casual seating. But dining area, you can imagine when you get up, from an upright sitting chair, you have to push it back. So if you're in a gravel, pea stone, on lawn, that's it's not the most comfortable. Unless it's just a temporary setup. So a material, a paver, whether it's brick or a type of a of a blue stone or another type of a stone, that's gonna be easier. It's gonna be a level surface for a dining area. If it's casual seating like Adirondack chairs or like a reclining chair, those have substantial feet, more or less. And those, I find, are pretty level, even on lawn. So thinking how you're going to use it, what's reasonable, the flooring material, it needs to be considerably larger than the furniture, as you need like what you call a traffic pattern. So you have a space where you're going to go to and from a house, and you're not going to have furniture like within that traffic area. And so, so accounting for that. If you don't account for that, you have this beautiful outdoor gathering space, and then maybe you're gonna you're gonna trip off the off the patio because there's no room to get from the house to the to the gathering space. And I, I'm pretty sure there are formulas that designers and architects use to kind of map out what that space typically should be. If we can find a resource online, we'll post that because it would be too much to go over each. Like if you have a counter, you need this much clearance. And <laughs> that might be a little bit much for one episode, but that concept is really important. And, mm-hmm. you know, so if your space happens to not accommodate the full dining set, maybe there's a design solution that would be more modest, but still really work with the space and still give you that sense of extra room for your living. 
and the size of the furniture. I remember there was a client in Connecticut and she had traveled to uh, beer gardens in Germany. And there's a certain style of, so there you have hundreds or thousands of people that are gathering outdoors. And there was a special furniture that, that she wanted to get for her home in Connecticut, where it's, it was a long, thin table and the chairs, they're perfectly comfortable, but they were very low profile. They did not take up much room. So the table, I might have took up like 40% the width of a normal table. If you had a big beer garden, you can maybe pack almost twice as many people. And so the beautiful full-size table, there might be a lot of lost space. And so to really carefully think, is the furniture fit the space? Is there room? It's nice, it's nice to have potted plants outdoors. That makes a, an area feel welcoming. And so those take up quite a bit of space. And there's all kinds of tricks. There can be hanging plants above you. There can be outdoor curtains, outdoor fans. The temperature is very important. So thinking if it's attached to the house, a pergola, it'd be, be reasonable to have an outdoor fan or an outdoor heater. So we've talked about climate control, flooring, furniture, the overhang. What about walls? And why would walls be important in terms of seeing into a space? Having some enclosure feels comfortable. So there's that term, it's a term called the fishbowl effect. You can imagine if you're a fish in a fishbowl, all eyes can see in. So listeners may have experienced this when you're in, a, in your backyard and maybe you're down low, your neighbors are, are, up, are up above or there's other residences or buildings. If you're in a space that you're aware that there are eyes into your space, it's a little uncomfortable. So it's not that you need 100% privacy. Like in our New York garden where we planted trees. So when we were on the back deck, there was like adjacent townhouses. And so there was some separation is, is really important. So it's uncomfortable to have your back to a pathway. So actually having peace stone or, or a, a gravel and aggregate that makes a sound, that's a, a, a principle that's very helpful where you can hear somebody coming. Yeah, even if it's just psychological, because I don't recall even seeing the neighbors in the adjacent townhouses. You might be aware that they were barbecuing up there, but it wasn't like you could really see them, but you had this weird sense that they were looking at you. Right. And the tree, which is not that, it's not like an opaque wall, provided that just sort of, I think, psychological sense that you were separated and somehow right. safe. <laughs> I mean, in trees that are popular, you see the London plane tree, the honey locust tree, there are trees that have that create dappled shade. So maple trees tend to create pretty dark shade, which maybe in some climates would be if it was like in in the southwest, the the live oaks produce pretty dense shade. It which is needed. It's so hot if it's a hundred degrees. In the temperate regions, having trees that allow in sunlight is important. And so there are trees that have compound leaves, where there's it's a leaflet that has small leaves like the, like the honey locust is very popular for that. The London plane tree has big leaves, but it's relatively the habit or the shape is pretty open and it allows in sunlight. Now that's an important component. How much sunlight, like what percentage, and, and there's information on that. Of course, one element of using an outdoor space effectively or comfortably, I guess I'll say, is insect activity. Mm -hmm. uh, you know, I mean, the mosquitoes are pretty prevalent most places I've lived in the United States can be pretty unpleasant. And of course, we do the citronella candles and sometimes even citronella torches. And I think they work, but I'm not sure. I mean, what's your recommendation? Yeah, thinking that the time of day that the space will be used. So 
I mean, my experience has been that too. In the evening, the insects come out often. If it's possible to have a screened-in area that would be safe in the like in the let's say after dinner, that's ideal. An outdoor space further away, the insects may become it may become uncomfortable. Oh, that is a good point for your secret garden idea. Right, <laughs> not so secret from the insects. I so having lots of choices. I mean, the the different shade structures, awnings, umbrellas, parasols. Citronella candles, they can help make the space feel more comfortable. This human nature, if it's uncomfortable, then the space is not used. All these different tools and resources can help make it more comfortable. And again, we're not necessarily talking about giant estates where you can have, you know, the gazebo off in the distance or something. I mean, we we were referring to our own garden in New York, which was a townhouse garden. There was just enough space for a little deck that was sort of farther out into the yard. There was a porch and it's the way you delineate the space and then Mm -hmm. kind of access it. And again, there were differences in how they were utilized based on how hot it was in a given season or cold. And so you may be able to kind of program things for different times of year. Um, Right. And the materials, the temperature, that's very important. So like wood does it more or less, does not conduct heat or cold. A cast stone bench conducts a lot of heat and a lot of cold. So in a temperate climate, let's say you're in New England or the, or the Midwest, in the summer, a cast stone or a metal bench would probably be fine. It's the temperatures, let's say it's in the mid 80s Fahrenheit, that might be fine. Or, and then it cools off at night. So knowing, and we're doing research about in the desert where it, the climate's so extreme, wood doesn't last really long. So, so cast stone might be, there's other options. And that, and that would hold true like with the paving material. There's things that heat up so much or get so cold. So park benches are often, ha- are often wood. There's a component of it because it's, it's comfortable. Although yeah. I suppose in the desert where it cools off so much at night, if, you had a, if you're not going to be out in the daytime anyway, but you have a material that kind of warms up and stores mm. the heat like concrete or I, cast, you, stone. cast stone, then you have something that's sort of like still warm-ish as the evening is cooling mm. down. So, it, I mean, it really is like so specific and it's all about kind of thinking it through, just thinking it through. Again, don't be like me and go straight to the catalog and look for the <laughs> <Right>. <laughs> teak furniture and the beautiful cushions necessarily. Finally, there's a great benefit. Again, if you are, we're not talking about the epic estate, those are really fantastic. But if you don't have the gazebo, you can always put up an umbrella. That there are elements to kind of like the movable furniture, there are elements that you can have in the landscape that are not fixed and yet can create this sense of space. And you can change it up. I mean, wind is a factor. So if you're building a structure, architect and engineer, they're going to assess how to safely construct something. So non-fixed elements like furniture, umbrellas can be dangerous in the wind. And so that's just like an added step of when you're not using it, that it's secure. And where would you store it? Oh, right. Like just making sure that it's going to be practical. It's the storage of the furniture. That's a pretty big element to think. Maybe let's say it's a, it's a special wood bench that maybe costs two or three times other furniture. But if you're able to leave it there all year, as opposed to having to move it, that cost and that benefit it might be worth it. You know, to really think every November we're going to have to move these 12 pieces of furniture indoors. Then there's also furniture covers and that can, and, and for fire pits and, so there's yeah, thinking, sort of thinking it all the way through and what's reasonable, like knowing yourself, what am I going to want to move 12 pieces of furniture? <laughs> oh, 
That is a good point. Or maybe putting covers on it, not a big deal. Yeah, very good point. So we're certainly advocating for maximum use of the landscape and enjoyment of the landscape, Mm -hmm. getting out in the landscape and really sort of soaking it all in. If you've done all this work to plant your beautiful hydrangeas or you've selected the right tree and you've gotten it out there, then having this access is really quite wonderful. And and I think actually, for me at least, psychologically beneficial. It's, Mm -hmm. you know, it's a great feeling to get to be outside and to enjoy the space. And of course, if we're in an apartment that maybe only has a fire escape, then having access to the the great parks that we mentioned in some of these city spaces is really helpful or a rooftop garden mm-hmm. as uh, my father's cousins have in Brooklyn, which is <laughs> a right. real beautiful. Oh, asset. you can see the Statue of Liberty. I know it's really fantastic. So it's just this idea that there is this space all around us. And the more we can kind of get into it, the more enjoyment we can derive from it, but it does take careful planning because to do it too quickly or to make a false step, just really like the discomfort can be immediate when it's not, you know, when it hasn't quite been thought through. Right. Do you have any other tips for our listeners before we call it a show? Well, let's see, you know, planters, I remember seeing this recently, there's seasonal planters, so plants, flowers that look great during the summer or the season that you're using it. But there's also plants that come back, which might be evergreen shrubs or other plants. So that's also a factor thinking the cost and the effort. So a mix, a planter that has some evergreens or some plants, perennials that come back every year. And then there's some that are supplemented. Yeah. We talked a lot about the sort of hard elements that, you know, the non-plant elements that would go into these spaces. And of course, container gardens may even be a whole extra episode just to cover the options that are out there. But of course, we always welcome your feedback. You can find us on Facebook at In the Landscape or on Twitter under in underscore landscape. We look forward to hearing from you. We are on Instagram under our design firm name, King Garden Inc, I-N-C for incorporated. King Garden Inc, that's on Instagram. You can also follow that to find our website. And we hope you enjoy listening to the podcast. Feel free to drop us a line to ask us a question. Uh, We are putting together episodes based on listener questions. And to give us feedback from your part of the world. Of course, we're sometimes locally focused, but we're avid travelers. We're really excited to hear about what's going on in your landscape. And mm-hmm. so we look forward to connecting with you. And our email, which I should, should mention, <laughs> although I've mentioned it every episode, connect at kinggardeninc.com. That's another way to reach us. And maybe with this, like a, like a parting thought, having things that are frivolous and fun and maybe it's an ornament that you got from a trip that's often fun in the landscape so there's a very practical elements and that's going to be comfortable that the outdoor rooms can be there can be there's weatherproof clocks and thermometers and outdoor lamps that are waterproof so it can you can really think of it just like an indoor room maybe there's something a memento which would you know trigger a memory of a trip and so having those being these really special outdoor spaces at our destinations for friends and family. And, and that it's at the end of the day, it's, it's a sociable space. That's really important. That's great. So we hope you enjoy some time in the landscape sometime soon. And we look forward to having another conversation next week. Thank you for joining us. Thank you. Thank you.